Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and I want to welcome you to Season 3 of Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with authentic and courageous leaders from all over the globe. You will learn from leaders you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolkit. Leadership belongs to all of us. It's not measured by stature or title. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. So welcome back to Imperfect. I, you know, every week we talk about how I meet people and people get referred to the show and people send emails through our website to be on the show. And I'm excited today because I haven't had a health coach on the show. So I'm very interested to interview this gentleman, but I like his approach and I feel like he has a niche and I can't wait to hear the story behind it. So please welcome John Farinelli to the show. Thanks, Deb. I'm really happy to be here. Well, I'm excited that you're here and I I might even refer this podcast episode to my husband and and all the men in my life because I'm interested to see how you landed in this space. So if you are ready to jump into some leadership questions, I I would love to hear your story. So Absolutely. Before before I jump in, I changed things up this year because I I love imperfection, hence the name of the show. Uh-huh. And I can read your bio and, and tell our listeners, which we now have in 65 countries, which I, I feel humble and almost goosebumpy when I say that. Please share a little bit of your history and bio and, and, and give us kind of a, a snapshot of how you landed where you are today. That's a big question, but I'll try and keep it brief. So I came to this work from my personal experience, my own you know healing journey is the hip phrase uh, in the in the space. But from a young age, I dealt with, you know, some chronic mental health issues and chronic physical health issues. So I dealt with like anxiety, depression, insomnia, like from a young age. And I also would had a really bad immune system or a weakened immune system. So just I would be sick very regularly. I would get strep throat at least once or twice a year as a kid. Lots of antibiotics, which, you know, as we understand the gut microbiome more, the more antibiotics I would take, the more harm I was doing in the long term. But essentially, um, that experience from a young age got me just really curious about the world and how the mind works, got me interested in psychology and neuroscience, and also that led me into Eastern spirituality. And then as my physical health kind of got worse and worse uh, up into my early 20s, I realized that, you know, this isn't normal. I need to do something about it. I was sick like two weeks out of every month. So half the year I had some sort of cold or flu, something going on, and I was totally fatigued. The conventional doctors I was going to at the time were just telling me, you know, is in my mind or it's like some psychological issue. But that led me to doing some deep explorations with diet and lifestyle. Long story, there's a lot of iterations. I made some massive improvements just by doing that. Once I found functional medicine, the first round of tests that the practitioner ran, found out I had Lyme disease, had a chronic viral infection, had an intestinal infection. I feel like there's one other thing that I'm missing, but that was very validating, gave me some direction. I started treating those. So after the lifestyle interventions, after the diet interventions, after taking all the supplements and everything, I had really greatly improved my well-being in a lot of ways, but still, you know, had kind of plateaued. And 
that's when I started doing more seriously this deeper emotional and spiritual work. I found a therapist for the first time in my life who wouldn't let me intellectualize things and made me feel my feelings and helped me do that because I was totally inept at that point. And once I started doing this deeper work, my physical health and my uh, mental health like all got significantly better. So I've had these distinct stages in my life where I focused on the cognitive and the emotional, or I guess the cognitive and cerebral, and then the physiological, and then this like other piece about the emotional and the spiritual. So I think that with that perspective, I'm seeing like the through lines of them and the limitations of each and how they really do have to work together. Well, and your story really resonates with me on many levels. My daughter had Lyme disease and she got bit by a tick. Um, we're boaters. So where do they live? They live near water, tall grass, you know, any provincial park. And it and it saddens me, but it makes me happy at the same time that you had to navigate a system that you had trust in. Mm. And I have met so many families whose spouse or child had Lyme disease. And if you don't fit into the box of an assessment within the medical world, they automatically throw you into psychological or psychiatric. And that's something I've been on my soapbox for 30 years about. It's not everybody's going to fit in that box. Yeah. So I I feel literally on a visceral level what you've gone through because I watched my own child, mm-hmm. but it makes me happy because she's working towards where you are as a health coach to help other people who don't have to go through that journey. So what a full circle moment for you. Yeah. Well, and also just to clarify, I I didn't actually fit into that box either. Like a lot of it was just, you know, it didn't fit the mold. People wouldn't have even suspected that, especially where I grew up and all of that. So yeah, I have a lot of compassion for people who have very legitimate issues and symptoms, but are just not being validated or taken seriously. Well, and just as an aside for our listeners, Google Lyme disease because Lyme disease has changed. And Mm -hmm. the ticks, before they even bite us, they can have up to five bacterial infections. And and yes, you can eradicate Lyme disease. I'm going to say that on my show because I've seen it done with my own daughter. But getting rid of those bacterial infections takes things to a whole other level. Yeah. So the one that is probably the top of the food chain is the Bartonella. Mm-hmm. And it goes into the brain and can cause seizures. Non-epileptic seizures. We could do a whole show on that. Yeah. But I, I want to dig into some leadership questions because your trajectory and, and maybe some of the hardest seasons of your life have brought you to where you are today. So you talked about, um, this is my first leadership question. You talked about your relationship and learning about the power of food and how it affected your mindset, mental health, physical health, and even your ability to stay connected and lead from the heart, which is what you know I love. Yeah. How has that affected your work life and your personal life? Um, That's... There's a lot there. You know, I feel like our relationships with food are sort of a microcosm of our relationships with the outside world. And that's why they tend to be a really powerful source of exploration and why I like to work with people in this regard. Because, you know, 
it can be difficult, like things on the outside might look like you have them under control, especially if you're a high achiever or type A person, you know. But, you know, when you have this deeply personal thing, which is your relationship with food, when no one's around, that is, can give you a lot of information about who you really are and what you're dealing with. So one example of how this has shown up in my life is when I was first doing all this diet and lifestyle intervention stuff, I was coming at it from a very desperate place. I was really sick. I really saw this as like a make or break sort of thing. I had to be, in my mind, 100% like clean in my eating. But I also realized that that was manifesting in my life with a lot of fear. I was trying to control a lot of the things in my environment as well. So, and at the time I was a chef, which is interesting because I I was limiting all these foods. My diet was so restricted, but I was being micromanaging with my coworkers. I wasn't even in a managerial role, but I was just so fine, um, like nitpicky. And that was the same thing with like my housemates. So that is one way that I've seen personally, like that period in my life, my relationship with my food was a manifestation or leaking out. Uh, into the relationships that I had around me. It's interesting. I've had a couple other chefs on the show and there's some synergy in, in what you just said there. And how interesting that that was your first chosen vocation. Mm-hmm. And then it landed up being so powerful, really migrating you and leading to where you are now to the point where you're helping other men so they don't go down the same path as you. That's very powerful. Oh, Thanks. So my second question has permanent residency on the show. I've asked every single guest this question. It brings a lot of laughter. What imperfections does John bring to his heart-centered leadership? Yeah, this is, I don't think the episode is long enough (laughs) for me to go into my list. But I I think one thing that's, it's hard for me to answer that because when I think of imperfections, I think you're just asking me like more of like, who are you, John, right? Because- perfect by whose standards. But I guess if I'm thinking from like an outside perspective in at like what a health coach is or who a health coach should be, right, without that nuance, you know, I've struggled a lot with disordered eating myself. uh, And it's, you know, I still do emotional eating at times. I'm at a totally different place than I was in the past. Like it's contextualized and it's not my only route for processing my emotions, but it's still there. Um, And it ebbs and flows. So that's one thing, uh, just that experience of, you know, emotional eating and navigating that. And, and, and you know what? I mean, some of the imperfections that fall off of that are perfection. Yeah. Disassociation, impatience, yeah. right? Like, it's, it's a fun question so that we can see that part of who we are, because I'm also a yoga teacher, part of our, our being is to have that intention to embrace our imperfections. And there is no tangible reality of perfection, period. Yeah. And and when we when we can laugh at ourselves, and and you know what? And I say this with utmost respect for emotional eating. Don't we all do a little bit of that? Oh yeah. I mean, there's definitely different categories of it, but it is, I think that's part of it, is we pathologize this thing that is relatively normal and ubiquitous, right? And then that adds more shame and perpetuates the cycle. Absolutely. And I I always love to instill some candor and humor. And I remember when I first got certified as a yoga teacher, I thought, 
when I want the cheeseburger, I'm going to be so mindful and I'm going to mm-hmm. take each bite because I'm a very slow eater. I really love to savor what I'm eating, especially if I cook it. But if if I'm in a restaurant and someone else cooks it, I'm just so grateful that I I didn't cook. I don't have to clean up. I don't have to do the dishes. But as much as this has humor attached to it, it's such an important habit of thinking. Mm-hmm. We should sit down to savor when we're nurturing our bodies and it shouldn't be something that's in our schedule and rushed and that we feel like it's an obligation. It's it's part of nourishing ourselves. So I often have executives that say, well, I don't take lunch or I eat at my desk. That's a whole that's a whole other show in itself. But yeah. I just want to say I join you in that and I think emotional eating you know, when we have uh, a craving for something, mm-hmm. our body wants that. We don't have to get into a big debate with our inner brain to think, you know, play this ping pong game. Just if you want the piece of chocolate, have the piece of chocolate. If you need to have some chips, have some chips and be mindful of it and with no guilt. Yeah. And we and I know I know that sounds simple and it's much more complex than that. But I just want to say, I think everyone joins you in 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 that arena and and but we try to maybe change the language or make it fit somewhere else but i really think a lot of us globally are in unison yeah absolutely there and there's there is a lot of nuance to what you just said um so i want to validate the people who are like really struggling with this yeah absolutely but but there that is one approach that i can bring into this with the work that i do with clients is that intuitive piece like how can you follow that intuitive pull and those intuitive cravings and balance it, like honor it and balance it and accept it so that you're not at least adding more stress and shame and guilt on top of it, which can perpetuate the cycle. You know, it's, I used to volunteer at hospice and I would meet people at the end of life. And when I would be with someone elderly who just, you know, I'm talking late nineties, sometimes a hundred. Wow. You know, they would joke and say, I've had a great life. Eat the damn cake. Uh-huh. Have, have, have the glass of wine. Or It's just so introspective to me to talk to people at different times of their life. But when they're at the end of life and they've lived a, a full, rich life, but we had this open conversation about this, like not just having the birthday cake on your birthday once a year, like mm-hmm. all these celebrations and, and associations that we have. I just, I find it so fascinating. So third question, you have chosen to have a health coach practice where you have really been passionate about supporting men. Mm-hmm. And you talk about supporting uh, emotional and, and mental health and how it has a ripple effect can you walk us into that kind of framework that you've developed? And I know you so gracefully shared that you had some difficulties. Share with us how you kind of brought this all together and why you wanted to work with that demographic. Yeah, so the reason why I'm feeling really strongly called to working with men is in a lot of ways in this realm, I feel like they're underserved. And underserved largely because of opting themselves out, right? A lot of men, uh, by sheer active conditioning and all of that, either don't take uh, their mental health and emotional health seriously or think it's not that big of a deal. Or if they are struggling, there's shame in, you know, in asking for help and in realizing like, oh, I can't 
do this all my all on my own. That is something that's put on us a lot of the time, and not just men, but because that's my my lived experience and the demographic that I work a lot with. Um, I can see those traits showing up in in their life and having a big impact. So that's that's why I've chosen the demographic. And as far as how to work through that and move through it, part of it is just starting to learn the language of emotions and connecting with your body. Like this is the was the first stage for me uh, when I finally found a therapist who wouldn't let me intellectualize things. He he would ask me, okay, what are you feeling right now? And I would give him what I thought I was feeling. He's like, no, just be quiet. What are you feeling? And it, I didn't, once I got to like what he was actually asking me to do, I had no idea what, it's like, he's telling me like, okay, now jump 10 stories in the air. Just do that. And I was like, okay, well, how do I even, I have no frame of reference. So there are practices that have really helped me and that I help my clients with in starting to build that dialogue and develop that vocabulary and also the the courage and the confidence to be with it because it it can feel really daunting and really scary, which sounds silly to maybe some men. Like emotions aren't scary. They're not daunting. But like once you start getting in there and once you start being very real with yourself and fully being with them, it can feel overwhelming. It can feel really scary. But then it's like the act of going through it that you release it and then you're able to integrate it and then move on and accept it. And I believe that's when men aren't doing this, when we aren't paying attention to all these pieces that are going on behind the scenes at these deeper levels, when we're not acknowledging those and working with them, they're going to show up in other areas of our life. They're going to show up in either self-destructive ways or they're going to be explosions out into the relationships and the people around us. And that can be, you know, yelling at someone that could also be like domestic abuse, like all of these issues and problems that are associated with men in our society, I see a direct link between, you know, unresolved uh, emotional intelligence, right? Emotional awareness and being, having the skills and the wherewithal to be with them and process them. Well, and you can have all the emotional intelligence that you think you have, But if the emotional resilience isn't there, then the emotional intelligence isn't really being served. Yeah, that's a good point. My last question is, you talk about trustworthiness without being trustworthy. Mm -hmm. Bring that into a leadership context for me with your practice and what you mean by that. So as far as leadership, um, when you're asking that question, I think that a lot of times leaders kind of, expect that people should trust them, right? That they're in this position. Maybe maybe they have earned it for a good reason. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that have gotten them to where they are. But if they're not fully trustworthy, that is going to be, a, that's going to manifest in the way that they lead, right? And even the mission that they're serving. And I, I really believe that everything about us is is expressed in everything that we do. So if you're not a fully trustworthy person, you know, in your life, then as a leader, you know, the people that you're leading aren't going to fully trust you. Even if they do what you ask them to do, that's going to have an influence on the what's created. And sorry, I just had a total, total imperfect moment where my mind was going down a track. 
Oh, you know what? They're allowed. They're like laughter. Yeah. They're just allowed on the show. Yeah. It's, it is, you know, I'll jump in here to see if you can kind of circle back. Yeah. It's like medicine or health because that's where our conversation started today on our interview. Because you're a doctor, that identity or worth and worthiness doesn't give you automatic trust and rapport with me. I'm trusting that you're going to be a kind, empathetic, and listening doctor and that you've done the work to become an MD, but the trust and rapport is from the first time we meet and have an exchange in energy, a discussion. And I'm coming to this person because I'm sick. Yeah. And I mean, based on your history, you've probably seen a lot. And it saddens me that, and I can say this about my own doctor, my doctor retired and somebody in her practice that was a patient became a doctor and took her practice over. I've only seen this person once because they changed the policies of the clinic. So you call at 8.30 in the morning, you get a very unfriendly receptionist, very unfriendly, and all the, all the spots are filled for the day. You have to just keep calling. I have a better chance in winning the lottery. Mm. And now I don't even want to call there. I'd rather see a nurse practitioner. And again, it's probably similar to the U.S. Our nurse practitioners can now do everything that a doctor does. They they didn't and were not allowed to requisition um, any kind of higher-end diagnostic imaging like an MRI. Last summer, they passed it because the country's in crisis and we don't have enough of them. Yeah. So they're taking, you know a lot off doctors in terms of requisitioning, but everything comes down to dollar and cents. Do you really need it? People are coming to you because you're sick. So that that trustworthiness, I get what you mean there. It's not an automatic trust and rapport. It has to be earned. And you get that one chance to make a first impression. And a lot of people don't do it very well. Yeah, but especially as a leader, um, like in a leadership role, it's not something that you do once, right? It's something that you do every day and that you yep. have to be committed to and is a manifestation of your character and your values. And some leaders do it very well and some don't. <laughs> yeah. How, how's that for ending that? Yeah, sounds good. Okay, I'm going to switch to my Fab Four. These are four fun, rapid questions. Whatever's sitting on the top of your mind is what we want. So no thinking here. Okay. Okay, okay first question. If I spoke to... Anybody in your family? And I asked them to describe John in one word. What would the word be? Hmm. Is even keeled one word? Sure. It can be hyphenated. Okay. Even keeled. Even keeled. So would that be synonymous to aligned or balanced? Uh, s- Integrated? S- yeah, similar. Yeah. Okay. Question two. What is a book that you've read any juncture, any time in your life, that was really life-changing. And can you remember the name and the author and tell us why? Yeah, so a book that has had a profound impact on my life is, it might sound a little silly, but The Tao Te Ching uh, by Lao Tzu. That, I read that when I was a teenager and that that just really stood with me, especially this concept of Wu Wei. I might not even be pronouncing it correctly, but uh, it can be translated a, a number of different ways. If anyone's ever looked at the Tao Te Ching, there's a lot of different interpretations. But the way that I, it's been a guiding force in my life is this concept of effortless action. And what does that even mean? And it's this idea for me of like, 
how can I be the most effective and in the flow without having to force things in my life? And what I love about that, and I talk a lot about it, is what you just said, living with inner peace and in a self-directed way and obligations just not in our way of being. Uh That's powerful. I love that. Okay, third question. Super fun. I always love the answers to this question. So I'm granting you a wish. You get to have dinner with any leader of your choice. This leader could be living. They may have been passed away. Who are you having dinner with and what is the dinner conversation? Wow. It might be a little bit of a cop-out, but I, I'll i just tie it back to Lao Tzu. I think like if there was a, a time and a place and if language wasn't a barrier, just being able to spend time with him. And I think even in that context, it might be less about the conversation and more about just like the presence and being in that space and just like observing than, you know, than any particular question. I had a feeling you were going to say that. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we don't need to speak. And and his presence, just being in his presence and in all of what, what we know of him and what we've read of him, right? I, yeah. I get that. I, I'm excited that we have crossed paths. Um, I've already thought about a couple of people that I want to connect you with. And I feel joyous that you are a heart-centered leader. Your journey is been a season of, of many different seasons that's brought you to greatness. And now you're helping other men and you've specialized as a health coach. So keep leading with your heart And I'm going to have you closing out the show by finishing this sentence for me. Okay. Heart-centered leadership is? An act of service. Thanks for joining me today on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed the show today and learned some new tools for your leadership from our amazing Heart-Centered guest. And if you like the show, we would welcome a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. And we would love to have any comments or feedback at any time. And if you want some more heart-centered goodness, head over to our daily blog, masteringtheheart.com.